Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual, so when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted, overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, And apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. 
BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia, episode 26, The Grand Tour. I hope you all enjoyed the first History of Persia holiday special and the food of ancient Persia. If you haven't listened to that yet, check it out. I walked through many of the different foods available in the Persian Empire during the Achaemenid period. I also want to thank everyone for bearing with me through an unscheduled break. January was a bit of a mess, but I'm back, and starting this week, everything will resume the normal schedule. The previous regular episode wrapped up our series on the beginning of Darius's reign, with a detailed examination of the Behistun inscription. Just to recap where we are now, the sons of Cyrus the Great are dead and gone. Darius the Achaemenid is on the throne. Bardia, or Gomada, or whatever you want to call him at this point, was deposed in 522, and rebellions were defeated from 521 to 518 BCE. Once the empire was firmly under his sway, Darius spent the rest of the decade organizing campaigns of expansion. To the north, the Persians pushed further into the Central Asian steppe. To the east, they occupied the Indus Valley. To the west, the Egyptian satrap Ariandes took over Libya as far as Cyrenaica, and Darius invaded Europe for the first time, chasing the Scythians across the Danube and around the Black Sea. His general Megabyzus pushed westward into Thrace and accepted tribute from the Greek kingdom of Macedon. That brought the Achaemenid Empire to its greatest ever extent. The great king had incalculable wealth and resources, drawing on the 5.5 million square kilometers or 2.1 million miles of territory and the 25 million or so subjects that lived there. Now, 25 million is a paltry figure today, roughly the equivalent of the city of Shanghai, and even the highest estimates don't place the Achaemenid population over 35 million, about the same as modern Tokyo. But in 500 BCE, that was equivalent to 30 or 40% of the total population of the world. It was massive, the largest empire the world had ever seen, and it would not be outdone for over 300 years, until the Zhongnu built a massive steppe confederation in the 2nd century BCE. So far as I know, nobody has ever ruled over as large a percentage of the world population as Darius and Xerxes. The largest empires and nations of by population all seem to have about a quarter of the population since then. To manage this expansive and complex empire, many tools had to be employed. The tax and tribute system became ever more complex. Over time, coinage developed, roads were built and maintained to service a network of royal messengers, 
Aramaic was deliberately cultivated as a lingua franca. However, nothing is easier to display visually, or really even audibly, than the division of territory into administrative units, called satrapies, and the delegation of royal authority to satraps to rule over those divisions. So today, we're going for a tour of the empire, much like I did at the beginning of episode 1 way back when, but this time in more detail and under the auspices of and under the auspices of Darius the Great, King of Kings. This is directly inspired by Mike Duncan's episode Provincial Matters in the History of Rome and Robin Pearson's End of the Century Tours on the History of Byzantium. However, it cannot be researched in quite the same way as those projects. We know precisely when provincial Roman governors were appointed, who they were, where they were from, the borders of their provinces, the official names of their provinces, when the provinces were reorganized and by which emperor. For Rome and its legacy in Constantinople, we know all of that. In Achaemenid Persia, we know almost none of it. We only know the satraps when they come up in other narratives, and rarely have dates for their ascensions. We get lists of Persian subdivisions in a few places, almost all conveniently from Darius, but they're not consistent. The Behistun inscription lists 23 lands, as they're called, when Darius came to power. At Persepolis, a terrace bearing the so-called DPE inscription has between 21 and 23, depending on how you count, and they aren't all the same. That one accounts for some of his additional conquests in the 510s. At Darius's palace in Susa, the DSE inscription lists 27 or 28, including most of the previous two lists, but excluding Sagartia. At the Achaemenid royal necropolis, now called Naksha Rustum, the DNA inscription of Darius's tomb lists 29, adding a few and excluding others. Sagartia is gone again, and the Macedonians and a new group of Saka appear this time. A generation later, we get the Deva inscription of Xerxes I, Darius's son. This is where we start to see the list of conquered nations become less reliable. We know for a fact that Xerxes did not rule over the Greeks. In fact, he had actually lost control of most of the Greeks in the empire before his time, but that didn't stop him from claiming them as subjects. And we can only wonder what other little lies slip in. He is more honest than Darius by excluding the Scythians near the Black Sea, and does acknowledge the loss of Macedon, but also adds in the quote, men of Akofakia, which is unattested outside of that inscription. It could just be that they are identified by a very different name in Greek sources. It's also possible that they were some eastern group that Xerxes had to wage a campaign against at some point, and listed them as a conquered people, much like Darius and the Scythians. Herodotus, writing another generation later, named 20 provinces, but within those provinces he noted there were multiple peoples, leading to 20 divisions, but more than 60 subdivisions. As a result of those various lists, it's hard to choose a definitive collection, especially when Herodotus's lines up so poorly with the rest. Logically, we should preference the Persian sources, but historians and classicists tend to be kind of attached to familiar ones, so Herodotus gets pulled in anyway. Despite that, the list from the DNA inscription is usually considered the most definitive, and Sagartia is presumably incorporated into other provinces, but I'll talk a little bit more about that one later. So for the purposes of this episode, I'm going to turn over to modern scholars, who have spent decades, even centuries, trying to collate these various lists into maps and canonical lists, 
In my case, I'm going to use the excellent maps of Ian Mladyov. God, I hope I'm pronouncing that even remotely correctly. Specifically, his map of the administrative divisions of the Achaemenid Empire circa 490 BC. It is linked on the podcast website, historyofpersiapodcast.com, if you want to follow along or read some of the description for the map. Alright, after that lengthy preamble, let's start in the east, by popular demand. I had considered starting in Parsa itself and working out from there, but the Persian homeland is undergoing more change than most of the empire at this point in the narrative, and I want to address it a little differently. Plus, the Persians were not actually considered a province in the same way, so they wouldn't actually fit in here the same way as other provinces do. The eastern half, actually slightly more than half, of the Persian Empire is so poorly documented. The region between the steppe and the Persian Gulf, the Indus and Parsa, was illiterate prior to the Achaemenid period, when Aramaic was introduced as the written language of choice, and in general lacked many natural resources outside of a few key mineral deposits. The provinces were poorer, the people were more likely to be nomadic or pastoralists, and did not keep written records very consistently. Therefore, we have to rely on the very scant evidence from Mesopotamian and classical European sources to know anything about them. So given everything I just said, let's start our tour in Parsa. Now, I know I just said we wouldn't do that, but we're only here on a technicality. Most of southeastern Iran, in Achaemenid times, was a region known as Karmana, which wrapped around most of the Persian home province to the north, encompassing and lending its name to the modern city of Kermanshah, which was probably also its ancient capital. Now here's the thing. Karmana wasn't its own province, so far as we can tell. At least, most of the time. We know very little about Karmana's culture and what set it apart from its neighbors, or its pre-Persian history. At least some of the region was host to the Jiraft culture during the Bronze Age, a group at least partially related to the early Elamites, but we don't know a whole lot between 2500 and 500 BC. Theseus, as repeated by Athenaeus, tells us that they produced acanthus oil, which was paid as royal tribute. Acanthus is a flowering plant that has historically been a popular seasoning in Iranian cuisine and has widely been believed to have medicinal properties. Despite not knowing a whole lot about the Carmanians, or whoever lived there, or its role in the empire, we have a very interesting chronology of how it was governed, if we piece together all of our sources the right way. Our latest source for Achaemenid Karmana is the 3rd century Babylonian chronicler Barosis, but he provides the earliest point in the chronology. Barosis tells us that Cyrus gave Karmana to the deposed king Nabonidus after the conquest of Babylon, where he ruled as a vassal. Given how late the story is, and how it is recorded in a Babylonian chronicle, it's not universally believed, but hey, it's also the only record we have for Karmana under Cyrus, so there you go. So first, it's a vassal kingdom under Cyrus, ruled by the deposed Nabonidus. Karmana was also part of the territory that Theseus says was governed by Bardia as a sort of super-satrapy. Presumably there was someone in charge of Karmana specifically, subordinate to Bardia, but that's not recorded. Either when Bardia assumed the throne, or only under Darius, Karmana was fused with Parsa itself. So at the current point in our narrative, Parsa and Karmana are being governed as one province, but in the future they'll split apart again. By the time of Theseus, a hundred years after Darius, it had been absorbed by our next province, 
and by the fall of Darius III to Alexander, Carmana will be its own province with its own satrap. Moving east, once we pass Lake Harmoon on the modern Iran-Afghan border, we enter Gedrosia, the barren desert immediately east of the Persian home province of Parsa. This is roughly the same area as modern Baluchistan, straddling the Iranian-Pakistani border. Gedrosia was, as it still is, a mostly empty desert along the coast of the Indian Ocean. It was sparsely populated and nearly impossible to cross directly. According to Arian, both Alexander and Cyrus the Great struggled to ferry their armies across that vast expanse. Only one city, the capital of the satrapy, is known to us. That is Pura, and even then the exact location is unknown. Arian's Anabasis of Alexander places it on the western side of the satrapy. William Vulaseng has speculated that it may have been near the Bampur Oasis. A tribal group called the Oratai were lumped into the eastern side of the Gedrosian province. The Oratai only appear in Arian's account as a people conquered by Alexander and the home of one of many Alexandrias. The Oratai had a capital city, probably just a trade emporium called Rambakia. Once again, the location is unknown, but it was supposedly near the west bank of the Hub River, called the Arabius in ancient sources. Mladyov lumps this into Gedrosia, but it was probably more Indian in a cultural sense than Iranian, given the location in southern Pakistan and the theoretical connection between Rambakia and the Hindu story of Rama, an avatar of the god Vishnu. There's one problem with all of this talk about Gedrosia. It's never mentioned by Achaemenid sources. It's exclusively a Greek name for the region. In fact, it's only a later Greek name for the region. Arian uses it, but Herodotus does not. The Persians seem to have called the region Maka, and Herodotus refers to a people called the Muki. But there's an interesting story there too. On one hand, it's possible that Maka was an old Persian name for Balochistan, and there's not much more to it. Another name for the region today is Makran, and there might be some kind of connection there in the Persian language. On the other hand, Maka had already been a place name for at least 2,000 years by the time of Cyrus the Great, and the Persians would have known that. Maka was the historical name for what is now Oman, on the southeastern corner of the Arabian Peninsula. It was called Magan by the Akkadians and had a trade hub since that time in the early 2nd or 3rd millennium BCE. It exchanged goods not only with Mesopotamia, but also across the ocean with the Indus Valley. One of their greatest exports was copper, a crucial ingredient to the bronze that fueled that age. It was also the home of a type of underground irrigation called the Kanat, which the Persians copied and implemented in Iran during the Achaemenid period. The crossing between southern Iran and Oman is narrow enough that it could be made by riverboats during Cyrus's eastern campaigns, or possibly during the first five years under Cambyses when we have no records whatsoever. It seems that Maka and Gedrosia might have been considered one province, using the older Akkadian name for Oman. Arian also mentions the Oman promontory, calling it Maketa, and saying that it was once ruled by the Persians, but was independent by the 4th century BCE. Taking all that together, my best guess is that modern Balochistan and Oman were ruled by the early Achaemenid kings as one province called Maka. That name for the region on the Iranian coast persisted for years after the Persians no longer controlled the territory in Oman. At some point, the name Gedrosia was adopted in general use, but Maka remained the official one. 
After the fall of the Achaemenids to Alexander, the official Persian name finally fell out of use. At least, this is my theory for trying to reconcile all of this different information. Now, before we move on from Gedrosia, I want to talk about the Sigartians. They were mentioned as one of the lands controlled by Darius in the Behistun inscription. So they were somewhere in the empire. And Herodotus lumps them into the same tax district as the Gedrosians, which he calls the Mucha. This leads many scholars to conclude that the Sigartians lived in this area as part of the province of Gedrosia, and they were absorbed into that province sometime after the Behistun inscription. Now, I personally see just one problem with that. In the Behistun inscription, the Sigartians actually come up twice, once in the general list of lands, but also when they are rebelling against Darius in the region of Armenia. If you remember all the way back to episode 23, you might remember that the Sigartians allied themselves with the Median revolt led by Fravartish and were defeated at the city of Arbella, located in modern Iraqi Kurdistan. That's nowhere near Gedrosia. This leads to some questions about why Herodotus seems to think that they were in southern Iran rather than northern Iraq, or rather southern Persia versus northern Mesopotamia. The best answer I can seem to think of is that either under the Medes or the Persians, some Sigartians were granted territory in northern Mesopotamia in the former territory of Assyria. The Sigartians that were settled there took part in the revolt against Darius with the Medes, while other Sigartians were still located down in their original homeland of southern Iran. So, finally moving on out of Gedrosia, exactly what the eastern border was is very unclear, but it was probably around the Hob River. Now, when we cross that border, things get very murky all of a sudden. Of course, that's because we're back in India, or Satagadia. It's really hard to tell. And technically, it's all modern Pakistan. So let's get into that whole mess again. These two territories covered the Indus Valley. On the map I'm using for this episode, Satagadia is in the north, approximately the modern Punjab, and India, Persian Hindush, is located in the south. That makes sense, because that's how Aryan describes it. Specifically, he places Taxila, the ancient Indian university city, in Satagadia. However, Herodotus describes India as the wealthiest and most populous satrapy, delivering 360 talents, nearly 24,000 pounds or 11,000 kilograms in pure gold, as their annual tribute. That certainly doesn't describe the southern Indus Valley, but it might describe the north. So what gives? Well, with Herodotus, there's always room for mistakes. It's very possible that the historian got the two Indian satrapies mixed up, because, in fact, he doesn't even mention Satagadia. Arian leans very heavily on the personal memoirs of Ptolemy I Soter, who was actually with Alexander on his campaigns in the region. But on the other hand, the Seleucids, who actually ruled Satagadia, placed it in the south according to a geography from the 1st century CE. It would be great if we had some kind of firm Persian account of something, anything, really, that has to do with either province beside their names. Satagadia was listed in the Behistun inscription, so it was probably conquered first. India only appears later in Darius's reign, so he probably conquered it. Though recently, I heard an alternate theory that both regions were conquered by Cyrus and split into two satrapies by Darius, which might account for some of the name issues. Of course, this is all sort of a moot point, because outside of a series of seemingly independent kings defeated by Alexander in the mid-4th century, we don't actually know anything about Achaemenid India. And Aryan's account, 
despite the author's claims to the contrary, is pretty clearly an account of independent kingdoms. That meshes pretty firmly with the Indian record. We don't have a ton of information about the south from any angle, but Taxila, the primary city of the northern Indus Valley, is extremely well documented. As the biggest, wealthiest city and the seat of Alexander's satrapy in the region, we'd expect some kind of accumulated evidence of Taxila's history. It plain old doesn't exist. Taxila is a very old site. It was settled in the mid-4th millennium BCE, at the end of the Neolithic period. During the Bronze Age, objects from the Harappan or Indus Valley culture begin to appear in the record. It developed into a major city and regional center around 1000 BCE as the Bronze transitioned to the Iron Age, and it maintained that status to one degree or another for at least a thousand years, peaking during the Mauryan Empire in the 4th and 3rd centuries BCE. The primary archaeological site at Taxila, which would have contained the Achaemenid city, is the Beer Mound, but no clearly Persian artifacts have ever been found. Everything is further complicated by the oral and legendary nature of Indian history up to this point. Between the Bronze Age and about 250 BCE, there was no known writing in India, so everything we know about Taxila is based on later accounts and the written versions of oral traditions. Vedic stories in the Mahabharata feature Taxila, called Takshila in Sanskrit, and the Buddhist and Jain traditions both describe many of their early followers as students or teachers at the so-called university there. Of course, all of that is legendary and was only written down centuries later, which leaves us with just one more outlet to search. The geographer and grammarian Panyini, who lived in and around Taxila during the Achaemenid period. His works present an interesting conundrum. As a geographer living in Achaemenid Taxila and Gandhara, we'd expect his works of geography to mention the Persians and their empire. But they don't. It's not even that they give the impression of Indian independence. The Persians just aren't mentioned. That key evidence, or lack of evidence, fuels debate about Achaemenid presence in India, and the East in general. How could their presence be missed or ignored? They were a massive, all-consuming empire that loomed over all of their neighbors in the West. Why would it be so different in the East? It's probable that Achaemenid rule was loose and or short-lived. The Indian satrapies must have been functionally independent shortly after Darius's conquest of the region, even if they still paid tribute or partial tribute. They could have been a source of mercenaries and trade long after, but the reality is that the Achaemenids just don't seem to have had much power in the region to speak of. Persian influences only appear in art and architecture alongside Greek Hellenistic influences. Of course, a lot of this confusion could be negated if we assume that Hindush was not only the name of a satrapy, but also the designation of a great satrapy. Great satrapies are a concept, supported by only a few references in Herodotus and other classical authors but a very useful concept when trying to talk about the Achaemenid provinces. Sometimes, it seems, the satrap of one particularly important satrapy would be given authority over several of the neighboring territories. So in this case, the satrap seated in Taxila would be in charge of all of the Indian provinces, but each would also have their own local satrap in command of the smaller territory. That would certainly have included Satagadia and India, and probably our next province as well. From the northern Indus Valley, we turn west again, and enter the last culturally Indian satrapy, Gandhara, 
home of our friend Panini. The region, as in the idea of Gandhara as a geographical unit, was already very old in 500 BCE. It was first mentioned in the Rig Veda, and appears in various Indian traditions down through the centuries, particularly Buddhist ones, as Gandhara was an early stronghold of Buddhist beliefs. Very few details are known about 6th century Gandhara, and it seems it was composed of several kingdoms prior to a Caymanid occupation, and continued to be ruled by local vassals rather than centrally appointed satraps according to Aryan, though it's possible that this was another territory lost to independence later in the Achaemenid period. In all likelihood, that's how most of the territory on the edges of the empire functioned, though. Unlike the other two provinces, it's pretty easily identified. People continued to call the area Gandhara for centuries after the Achaemenids, and British archaeologist Sir Mortimer Wheeler found evidence of Achaemenid goods and buildings there. The territory was ruled from a city called Kapisa, roughly modern Begram, Afghanistan. But by the time of Alexander, it split into two regions. The east, just identified as Gandhara, and the west, called Parapamisos by Arian. Either this was never more than a collection of petty kingdoms centered on Kapisa, paying tribute to Persia, but it's also possible that this is another example of Persian power waning in the Far East before the actual Macedonian conquests. To the north of Gandhara, the Persian Empire faded into rugged mountains of the Hindu Kush. But if we turn south, we enter Arachosia. We've actually spent a bit of time here already in the podcast. If you remember back to episode 22, Arachosia was the seat of Darius's loyalists who had to fight off the invading Persian usurper, Vayasdada. Geographically, it was a large region spanning most of southern Afghanistan, as well as bits of neighboring Iran and Pakistan today. It derived its name from the Arakatos River, known today as the Argandab, which also lent its name to the satrapal capital city, Arakatoy. The Arakosian people were Eastern Iranians, speaking a dialect that was probably related to Avestan, and were likely Zoroastrians of some sort, given that Arakosia is one of the popular candidates for the birthplace of Zoroaster. Like a lot of the East, very little is known about Arakosia, Harovatish in Persian, in terms of its actual history outside of the Behistun inscription. And its inclusion in the empire is not in doubt, like the Indian provinces, so there's not actually a lot to speculate about either. However, it is still one of the better documented great satrapies. The satrap of Arachosia was often the master of his neighboring territory. It was almost always superior to Drongiana in the southwest, which I'll cover in a minute, and according to the Akkadian version of the Behistun inscription, they were in charge of Satagadea when Darius rose to power. That doesn't preclude Satagadea from passing into an Indian great- I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors. And Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. 
Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. It's atrophy later, though. The boundaries of the great satraps often changed as different satraps were put in place and Achaemenid territory shifted. When Alexander conquered the region, he incorporated Gedrosia into the greater Aracosian satrapy, and there may have been some kind of precedent for that. Beyond that information, though, not much is known about it politically. So we have to keep moving. Next we go westward, crossing the Helmand River and enter into Drangiana called Zraka in Old Persian. The Persian name was also the name of the local capital city. If we know little about Arachosia, then we know nothing about Drangiana. It corresponds roughly to modern Sistan, straddling the border of Iran and Afghanistan in that region. It contains dry plains, wetlands, and a few mountains. To the south, it bordered Gedrosia at Lake Hamun, and frankly, that's all we know about it. It was an eastern Iranian territory, and like the rest of the wider region, it was probably religiously Zoroastrian, with a blending of older Iranian traditions. North of Drangiana, we enter into the poorly understood province of Arya, literally meaning Aryan land, so basically Iran if you want to carry that out to a modern conclusion. But it was actually known as Haraiva in old Persian documents. Once again, we're straddling the Afghan-Iranian border and now reaching into Turkmenistan as well. The people here are still Eastern Iranians with all of the traditions we'd expect, but we start to see things blending into the steppe. In Achaemenid artwork, the Aryans are generally dressed very similar to the various Saka tribes to their north. The land was mostly mountainous, essentially filling out the last of the mountains and highlands of Iran and Afghanistan before giving way to the Central Asian steppe. However, the Hari River runs right through the center, and that river valley was actually incredibly fertile. It produced wine and grain in great quantities, and along that river sat the local capital, Artakoana, which is now Herat, Afghanistan. Sadly, basically nothing is known about Aryan politics. There's even debate over whether it was part of the great satrapy dominated by Arachosia, or if it was ruled by Media. We don't know anything about it. Fortunately, if we travel northeast again, we start getting some more information. From there, our tour enters the ever more important territory of Bactria. Bactria is an extremely interesting place that one day will deserve its own episode. It contained most of modern Afghanistan and was one of the most ancient cultural centers in the empire. It was a land of contrasting landscapes, barren desert, frigid mountains, fertile plains, all of the same territory. Bactrian history technically prehistory, really begins in the mid-Bronze Age with the Bactria Margiana archaeological complex, or, to shorten that, the BMAC culture. It is often considered the material component of the Indo-Iranian culture, and these earliest Bactrians exported tin, 
crucial for making bronze and the extremely valuable stone known as lapis lazuli to the Elamites and Mesopotamians. Their civilization must have grown wealthy, even if it did not develop a written language. Which is a shame, because I'm sure their early history is fascinating. Archaeologists have drawn a lot of connections between the culture described occasionally in the Avesta and the Bimak culture, leading many to suggest that Zoroaster himself may have been born in Bactria. Even if he was not, many of Zoroaster's earliest adherents must have been, and Bactria developed into an early center of Zoroastrianism, at least an ancient form of the religion. Bactria, Bakhtrish in Persian, was a satrapy conquered by Cyrus himself, probably in the 540s before the invasion of Babylonia. Its satrap usually ruled from the city of Zaryaspa, also called Bactra, which is now the site of modern Balk, Afghanistan. Often this was the seat of the Achaemenid crown prince in later centuries, and was strategically important as one of the most developed areas in the region, where the satrap of Bactria might be able to exert more control over neighboring territories led by local rulers. Most of the neighboring people, including many in Bactria's own territory, were nomadic or pastoralists, typical of the Central Asian steppe and hard to govern. Even Bactria itself only ever seems to be partially settled at best. Achaemenid Bactria itself was inhabited by a variety of different peoples. Predominantly, it would have been Eastern Iranians, speaking the local Bactrian language once again closely related to Avestan, and probably following the original teachings of Zoroaster more accurately than their Persian cousins ever seemed to have. More accurately than their Persian cousins. Though, of course, that point is speculative on my part. These Iranians were the native Bactrians. The arrival of the Indo-Iranians and the BMAC culture coincides neatly with our first evidence of identifiable settled society in the region. Of course, they were not alone. Bactria was located at the corner of a fascinating sort of triangle. To the north and northwest, we find steppe, always a region teeming with culture even when they are poorly understood. At this time, Central Asia was dominated by Iranian and Iranic peoples, but they certainly would have seen traffic from others, and the further out you got, the more diverse the Iranians would become. There was a lot of difference between the northmost Saka and the people more immediately around Bactria. To the southeast, we start to enter into the rest of Iran, where imperial influence was ever stronger as you approached Parsa. And to the southeast, we pass back into Gandhara and influences from India. Interestingly, despite their high-profile satraps, the Persians never seem to have exerted any overt influence on Bactria. No distinctly Achaemenid art or architecture has ever been identified there, and smaller crafts never exceed what you would generally expect from long-distance trade. Nevertheless, Achaemenid sources are clear that Bactria was a key component of the empire from the very beginning when Cyrus entrusted it to Bardia. Indian influence actually seems to have been greater than Persian. This is no surprise given the direct border with Gandhara, which exported Buddhism to Bactria very successfully during the Achaemenid period. By the Hellenistic period, Bactria was one of the largest centers of Buddhism outside of India. A more unexpected influence on Bactria, which would prove to be very important to the region's later Hellenistic history, were Greeks. Apparently, there was a large population of Greek speakers deported to Bactria during Darius's reign. The first came after the conquest of Cyrenaica, which I discussed back in episode 24. The Cyrenaeans who had revolted against their king, a client of the great kings, were defeated and shipped to the far side of the empire, 
Remember last time I talked about how Cyrene and Libya were the farthest western extent of the empire? Well, this is about as far east as you could possibly go. So they were thrown as far from home as they could possibly get. That Greek exclave was not absorbed into the Bactrian population, and it was surprisingly not cut off from the rest of Greece. They maintained contact with other Greek exiles and merchants all across the Persian Empire, and all the way back to the Greek mainland. They maintained Greek traditions, copied later Athenian coinage, and generally remained visibly Greek all throughout the Achaemenid period. Bactria was another one of these great satrapies. Its influence dominated most of the Northern Empire. On Ian Mladyov's map, the next region to discuss is actually represented as part of Bactria, though the Behistun inscription seems to treat it as a separate place. That is, Margiana, called Margush in Old Persian. Like Bactria and Arachosia, Margiana has been linked to one of the lands mentioned in the Avesta, so it was probably a component of the very ancient Zoroastrian and Proto-Zoroastrian heartland, which makes sense as it's also one of the first places with the Indo-Iranian BMAC culture, seeing as it's the M in BMAC. I discussed the geography of Margiana back in episode 23 when the Margian king Frada revolted against Darius. It corresponds roughly with eastern Turkmenistan and northwest Afghanistan, which is an incredibly arid region. It's mostly desert in the lowlands and sand dunes that gradually get taller until they turn into hills and mountains in Afghanistan and Iran. If not for a few scattered bodies of water, the region would have been nearly uninhabited, like Gedrosia but with no coastline. Particularly, the Murgab River, also called the Margush by the Persians, cutting through northwest Margiana, and the Hari River on the southwestern border. The local capital, also called Margiana, was located along the river of the same name, at the site of the Merv Oasis, a bastion of life in the desert. In all likelihood, that was Frada's seat of power during his rebellion. But beyond that, we know basically nothing about Margiana until Alexander turned up to conquer it. So from here, our tour turns northeast and we enter into one of the better documented parts of the region. Welcome to the satrapy of Sogdia, Suguda in Old Persian, and Sugda in the Avesta. This was usually part of the great satrapy based in Bactria, but is often treated as its own unit both in modern accounts and the lists of countries ruled by Darius. In later periods of Sogdian history, it grew wealthy and culturally distinct as a key component of the Silk Road trade route, carrying trade goods between China and the Near East, where Iran would be the first stop. However, in Achaemenid times, Chinese influence and trade hadn't really reached Central Asia yet, and so Sogdia was much like its neighbors. It was the first phase of steppe land, but not deep enough into the grassland to be dominated by nomads. Like Arya and Bactria, it was a combination of settled and nomadic. It's never clear if Sogdia was a satrapy in the sense that it was ruled by a governor, or if it was a client kingdom of the Achaemenids and the Bactrians. It was independent by the time we get to Alexander, and Darius is always loath to admit when he didn't have total control. The Sogdians sent shipments of semi-precious stone as tribute to the Persian king, indicating that they weren't taxing trade routes for themselves just yet, which would have provided quite a lot more money. It was bordered to the south by the Oxus, and to the north by the Jaxartes rivers. In the south of Sogdia, there was a tribe called the Derbeans, who I've mentioned on this show before. They were the ones who killed Cyrus the Great, according to Theseus, who supposedly had Indians and war elephants on their side from Gandhara in the battle against the Persians. To the northwest, the capital city was Marakanda, which is now Samarkand, 
still a major city of Uzbekistan today, and a site inhabited since the early Stone Age. And in the northern edges of Sogdia, there was a city founded by Cyrus the Great when he conquered the region in the 540s or 530s, called Seropolis by the Greeks when they arrived there. Beyond Seropolis, we enter the fringes of Achaemenid territory, where Persian control was tenuous at best. On Ian Mladyov's map, the northern edge of Achaemenid territory is broken up among the Amigioi, the Masagatai, and the Daoi. These groups were really only distinct to those who could see them. From an outside perspective, 2,500 years later, it's not unreasonable to call them all Saka, or Scythians, if you want to take the Greek name for the same broad cultural idea. These were the Aaronic language speakers that ruled over the steppe from Kazakhstan and south-central Russia and swept around the Black and Caspian Seas down through modern Ukraine and into the southern Balkans of Europe. Over that vast distance, there were naturally culturally distinct groups. These distinctions were recognized by their contemporaries and formed tribes and kingdoms and nations within the Saka, but from our perspective, it's really hard to see. Yet they are simultaneously much better described and distinct for us than most of their neighbors. Herodotus and later Greek writers described them in detailed ethnographies, with a sort of morbid fascination with the horseback archers and raiders who lived such different lives from the settled Greeks and Romans. I'll start with the broad strokes, the details that are mostly consistent from the Ural Mountains all the way to Thrace. In general, the Saka maintained a culture not all that different from the early Indo-Europeans that I discussed way back in episode 2. They were organized into tribes and tribal confederations, some understood more clearly by outsiders than others. In some cases, we have instances like Herodotus listing many tribes near the Greek world, while Darius lumps almost all of those together as the Saka Paradrea, the Saka across the sea. Herodotus describes the relationship of three of these tribes, which he called the Skoloi when taken together. Traditionally, those three tribes have been taken as just that, the three tribes in three geographical areas, but based on descriptions of how they traded and imposed their rule on one another, some scholars have developed an idea that these three groups of the Skoloi were actually social groups more similar to Indian castes or medieval European estates, which could be extrapolated across all of Saka society. Like the castes and estates, the basic groups were priests, warriors and rulers, and common herdsmen, farmers, and craftsmen. The core of what made the Saka the Saka was an equestrian and pastoralist lifestyle. These, of course, are the traits that have always identified the major cultures of the steppe. Whether those were Saka, Huns, Magyars, Slavs, Turks, or Mongols just depends on the time and place. From the Indo-European period around 2500 BCE, horses were integral to life on the steppe. They enabled movement over vast dry grassland between viable sources of water that allowed people to move with herds of domesticated sheep, goats, and cattle from pastureland to pastureland in a semi-nomadic lifestyle that centered on their herds. There were small pockets of supplementary agriculture, but overall, horse-mounted people traveled across the territory with their animals. The value of horses carried over to warfare. The Saka, like all steppe pastoralist invaders that came after them, were able to harry and overwhelm settled armies with horseback archery and speed that could easily wear out an infantry unit, leaving them vulnerable to a massive cavalry attack. They constructed hill forts that could be occupied in times of war when almost every adult man and many of the women would take up arms and fight, whether against other Saka or a settled society like the Persians. But generally, 
they preferred to keep their armies on the move, much like the rest of their civilization. Once again, like the Indo-Europeans of earlier millennia, the Sokka buried their elites in Kurgan tombs, mounds of earth built up over wooden scaffolding that acts as a nearly airtight burial chamber to house not only a warrior or leader's body, but also valuable hordes of grave goods that often included weapons, armor, jewelry, and crafts made from silver or gold. When we look to the classical accounts of their religion, they must have greatly resembled their proto-Indo-Iranian ancestors from more than a thousand years earlier. They had a polytheistic pantheon of gods whose names can usually be identified with Indo-Iranian words and religious concepts, and much like the Vedic and Avestan cultures, fire had a place of special reverence in their religion. They constructed no temples and had only a few gods worshipped through idols. Of course, those things later changed in Iran and India over time, but they were preserved by the Saka. Another similarity is the importance of intoxicating plants and the rituals of their religion. Herodotus notes that the Saka burned cannabis to, quote, purify themselves in the smoke. So yes, getting stoned was apparently part of their religion. Of course, Herodotus is very hazy on the details here, but doesn't have a firm grasp on what exactly this ritual was for. However, it's not hard to see a vague connection to the Homa or Soma of the Indo-Iranian tradition, whatever that may have been. It may have been that the Saka's cannabis was filling that role further west, or that cannabis was replaced by Homa in some groups. But that makes for an easy transition to our first specific group, the Amirgioi. The Amirgioi are mentioned by Herodotus as part of the Persian army, and by Ctesias as a group conquered by Cyrus the Great, but they are often connected to the Saka Homa Varga, listed as one of the countries ruled by Darius. They are usually listed alongside the Saka Tigrahoda, but apart from the Saka across the sea, so we know they must have been in the east. For the purposes of this map, Ian Mladyov has placed them as the easternmost Saka in the Achaemenid Empire, somewhere around modern Uzbekistan. The description Homa Varga has drawn a lot of attention over the years because we're not sure what it means. Homa is obviously enough, but the verb Varga is very unclear. Traditionally, it has been interpreted as Homa drinking Saka, but various other ideas have been floated. Some say that it's a derogatory, saying that they drink Homa irreligiously, and others have said that Varga actually means laying, and they laid the Homa plant in the fire like their neighbors did with cannabis. Unfortunately, that's about all we can say about the Emir Gioi, and we have to move on to the next section of the map. This is labeled Mesagatai, and of course this is the tribe that is most famous from their appearance in Herodotus's histories, where their queen Tomiris killed Cyrus the Great. The Mesagatai are a bizarre case. Scholars can never really feel like we know who they were, because we don't actually know where they lived. This huge province between the Oxus and Jaxartes on Ian Mladyov's map is unrealistic, but it's hard to know what would be realistic. The name used by Herodotus is obviously a Greek mispronunciation of something, but we don't know what. There are two theories, and I think it says something that one is found in many of my sources by classicists studying Greece and Rome, and the other is found in Encyclopedia Ironica. The more commonly cited option is the one given by classicists. The Masagatai in this theory is a corruption of Masaka, meaning Moonsaka. That has interesting implications, if true, because the ancient geographer Strabo tells us that their primary god was a sun god, honored with horse sacrifices. That sounds a lot like Mithra, but it's beside the point because we don't have any more details to go off of. 
On the other hand, the aeronologist theory says that the name stems from Masiaka, meaning fishing people or fishermen. That would imply that they were a fishing culture along the Jaxartes where they fought their battle with Cyrus. That at least establishes a location for Masagatai territory, but has the downside of leaving a lot of open space between them and the Oxus. Of course, there are other theories. Strabo writing during the Roman Empire, long after the Masagatai seem to have vanished into other Saka cultures, says that they lived in swamps and lowlands and mountains, and various connections to other Saka groups have been made through that description. Complicating everything is that the Masagatai are never mentioned by the Persians. In the lists of lands ruled by Darius, the Saka are those who use Homa, those who live across the Black Sea, and those with pointed hats, the Saka Tigraka Hoda. The most likely explanation is that the Masagatai are a subset of the Saka with pointed hats, and that other subgroups occupied the territory marked as Masagatai by Ian Mladyov. I'd go into more detail about the Saka with pointed hats, but aside from the story of King Skunka in episode 23, we really don't know anything. Well, I guess we know they wore pointed hats. That just leaves the Da'oi, also called the Dahai in some Latin sources, and the Dahan in Persian. These are another interesting case, because it's not totally clear whether they were part of the empire during the reign of Darius. They don't appear in any Persian writing until Xerxes' Deva inscription, Encyclopedia Ironica tries to resolve this by equating them with the Saka across the sea, reinterpreting the sea as the Caspian Sea here, but almost all other scholars disagree, which makes sense given how the Saka across the sea are actually used in other Persian descriptions. In the lists of lands, the Saka Paradraya are always set aside as a separate region from the other Saka, presumably because they were in Europe rather than Central Asia. The Hellenistic and Roman writers... Ptolemy, Barosus, and Strabo all place them in the northeast of the empire, but all other sources place them between the Caspian and Aral Seas. Some linguists have tried to connect them to the Chinese Da Yi, which would make them even further east. They've been connected to groups mentioned in both the Avesta and the Rigveda, placing them in Central Asia by at least the Late Bronze Age, so it's all a big mess and we don't know how to interpret their absence in the earlier Persian record. It's possible that the Persians still hadn't defeated the Saka near the northern Caspian Sea until Xerxes' reign, and it's also possible that some other band of Saka lived there until the Da'oi moved in and were claimed by the Persians. Whatever the case, it's important to understand that none of these Saka groups were ever really conquered. Defeated? Sure. Made to pay tribute to the great king? Sure. Sent their warriors to fight in Persian wars? Sure. But not conquered. At best, they were client kingdoms, but more realistically, they probably made their payments to keep the Persians out of their affairs and served in the army because it paid. The Saka were far from Persia and could easily evade a Persian army if they wanted to, much like the Masagatai did with Cyrus at first and what the European Scythians did to avoid Darius. The steppe was still largely unsettled and impossible to control for those who did not live there. But turning south, away from the unsettled steppe, and leaving the Dahai somewhere in the intersection of Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan, we head southwest to the surprisingly settled land of Khurazmia, Uvarazmish in Old Persian. There's evidence of a centralized kingdom in Khurazmia by 1300 BCE, and the Bimak culture spread there by 1000. Culturally, the people seem to have been related to the Saka, but in a more settled and centralized lifestyle. There is a large fortified site called Kalalagir, 
in Kazakhstan that is probably Karazmian, and based on the archaeological dates, it may have been the Achaemenid capital in the region. Much like Sogdia, it's not clear if this was a proper satrapy or a client kingdom ruled by a local king. By the time we have Greek details from Alexander's campaign in the region, they had already broken away from the Persian Empire. Karasmia was also the earliest candidate for Zoroaster's homeland, before more recent suggestions like Aracosia and Bactria, which I've already mentioned. Even though it was a centrally organized kingdom, with the absence of writing in the region, we don't know very much about its politics or its history, so we have to turn away again and move south. Going south, we pass into the satrapy of Parthia, entering through the sub-region of Hyrcania, respectively called Partava and Varkana by the Persians. Hyrcania was the northeast strip of Iran to the south and east of the Caspian, and has the notable feature of being one of the only sub-satrapies, regions within a satrapy, that we know much about. According to a few later sources, including Theseus, Hyrcania was governed by Astyages and his descendants after the Median king was given clemency by Cyrus the Great. This was possible without the Median dynasty posing a threat because they were subordinate to the satrap of Parthia. After or during the reign of Xerxes, Hyrcania became a full satrapy with an appointed satrap and remained that way until the end of the empire, or at least sometime in the early 4th century. The main satrapy here is Parthia, the immediate neighbor of Media, and a large chunk of northern and central Iran. It was ruled from the city that the Greeks and Macedonians came to know as Hecatompolos, which was also called Kumis in later periods. A mountain pass on the south coast of the Caspian Sea, called the Caspian Gates, formed the northwest border with Media, which then followed down along the lakes and the Zagros Mountains. The eastern borders were with Aria and Tronchiana, and the southern border with Parsa were less defined. Urban settlement in Parthia dates back to about 1000 BCE, but we don't actually know many of the cities in the region during the Achaemenid period. Prior to the mass trade from the east, Parthia's economy would have been almost entirely reliant on agriculture, which makes sense given the time period. Most of that would have been on the estates of the Persian and Median nobles, though surely some locals were involved as well, and free communities of peasants were documented in later periods. I'd like to talk more about Parthia because given its location immediately next to Media and Persia, you'd expect it to be well documented, and given its role in the future of this podcast, I'd love to have some information for you before it's suddenly a breakaway kingdom from the Seleucids. But we don't actually seem to know anything about Parthia in the Achaemenid period. It's just another province in the region of Iran. There's not much more to go off of. It was probably conquered by the Medes first and then absorbed by Cyrus when he took over the empire. But it's really not well documented until it's its own empire much later on. Now, the next logical place to turn would be west, across Parthia's long border with Media, or south across the much smaller boundary with Parsa itself, both of which are much better documented than anything I've discussed today. But wow did this episode end up long trying to cram in all of these eastern provinces, covering slightly more than half the total landmass of the empire. So for that reason, I'm splitting our tour up into a few episodes. In less than two weeks, I'll come back with the western half of the empire and significantly more interesting details in significantly fewer provinces and resume our normal podcast schedule. I'll end that episode on the far side of Media and Persia from where we are now, in Babylon, and then spend a third episode exploring the Persian home provinces. For now, if you want more information about the podcast or the podcaster, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com, where I have my bibliography, some useful links, 
the Achaemenid royal family tree, up to the children of Darius, and the support page. If you want to support the podcast, you can follow any of the links there, or check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash historyofpersia, where you can support me. And if you find other online creators you like there too, go ahead and support them. It's always welcome. My absolute best way for you to support the podcast is to tell other people about it. Share it with your friends on social media. On Facebook, I'm the History of Persia podcast. Same on Instagram and on Twitter, I'm at History of Persia. You can contact me on any of those places or use the email historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. And finally, please leave a review on your podcast service of choice. I know Stitcher and iTunes have two of the most robust versions of that, and reviews are always appreciated. Until next time, thank you all so much for bearing with me and listening to this episode of The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. 
Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.